Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we will finish up the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke this morning, beginning in verse 41. This morning's sermon is entitled, The Boy Who Was God. Key words are temple, father, and obedience. And begin by reading our entire passage this morning. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, this passage is the only instance in the entire Bible of Jesus between the years of his infancy and his, uh, the age of 30 when his public ministry began. Now, there are a lot of extra-biblical stories out there about Jesus' childhood, but they're obvious fabrications, Many of them involve stories of, they're, they're kind of fun to read, actually. Um, there are stories about Jesus playing tricks with water and parting puddles for his friends to walk through. Um, one story about uh, a neighborhood boy that he didn't get along with very well, so he just killed him with the word. Um, there are a lot of these stories, and they're entertaining to read, but obviously they're not real. What points to the authenticity of this story about Jesus as a 12-year-old boy is just how human it is, right? There's no attempt by Luke to make this appear as though Jesus was living a childhood outside of his humanity. He didn't play hide-and-seek and actually disappear until all of his friends gave up and said, all right, come out now. Jesus was a boy. He had a humanity. And Luke's gospel, more than all the other three gospels, stresses Jesus' humanity and his identification with the most humble members of society. We've seen that now all throughout these first two chapters. In other words, despite Jesus' divinity, 
Despite the fact that he was a boy who was God, he voluntarily submitted himself to the human processes of intellectual, physical, and spiritual growth. Paul, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Very familiar verses. Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men. But it's important that we keep in mind also, as we consider Jesus' humanity, we also have to keep in mind his divinity. Jesus indeed was divine. One of my favorite passages in Scripture makes this so very clear. Colossians chapter 1 Verses 15 through 20. Speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So while all of this is absolutely true concerning Jesus eternally, It was the preeminence that Jesus in his humanity emptied himself of. And if that's not mysterious and difficult enough to to grasp, remember that while Jesus emptied himself in one sense of his omniscience, of his omnipotence and all of his other attributes of divinity, in his divinity, as the God-man, he still maintained them. Very clear, right? In other words, in his humanity, Jesus had to grow and learn just like you and I have to grow and learn. But in his divinity, he knew everything. He held all things together. All things were held intact. And by his word, it was all created in the first place. So Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, had the motive and the will of God as God. But he restrained his infinite power and strength and knowledge. He surrendered their use absolutely as a man. We mentioned a few weeks ago that theologically we call this the the hypostatic union. That Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% Man, we see it all over in this passage this morning. As a side note, I want to make sure that we're clear that it's very important that we don't intermingle the divinity of Jesus with the humanity of Jesus as a sort of percentage game. Jesus wasn't 90% God and 10% human or however we want. He is 100% God, 100% human. My favorite illustration, consider... An ice cream machine, one side has vanilla, 
and one side has chocolate. And if you pull the center, what happens? Vanilla and chocolate swirl together, right? We cannot think of Jesus in his hypostatic union as God and man as the chocolate vanilla swirl. He is both and, 100% each. It's not intermingled. They are going on at the same time. It's a divine mystery, and I'm thankful for it. We can find great comfort in this great truth that's shrouded in this mystery of how it happens. How is it worked out? But without his divinity and his humanity simultaneously, Jesus could not accomplish what he did as the Savior of the world. And so we hold this great truth in tension and we must rest in the mystery. So with this great theological truth of Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity laid over the top of our text, let's, uh, let's look more closely. Again, verses 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now, according to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 16, 16, all male Jews were required to attend the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. So at Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. A Jewish law was very clear that women were exempt from having to do this. But what we see here is another indicator of Joseph and Mary's faithful devotion to God. Because they went to the temple every year together. It was only required of Joseph, but Mary attended with him. Now, prior to Joseph and Mary making the yearly journey to Jerusalem at Passover, the Jewish people were scattered all over the Roman world and beyond. So to make a journey to Jerusalem three times a year was nearly impossible. So most faithful Jews of what was called the dispersion, those who were dispersed around the land, they made it at least once a year. And Joseph and Mary made it their custom to go each year at Passover. Now, it's significant that Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem at Passover because of what it was, because of what it ultimately pointed to. The feast itself commemorated, remember, God's work of redemption in rescuing his people from Egypt and leading them into the promised land. But it also pointed forward to something even greater, even more important. God's work of redemption in rescuing his people from the power and bondage of sin and leading them to the eternal land of promise and rest in heaven. So while the Passover feast was celebrated each year to remind the people of God's work through the shed blood of a lamb which we'll see in just a moment, the ultimate Passover would soon come. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God would be sacrificed and a once-for-all atonement would be made for His people, thus calling God to pass over them with His judgment. And it instead rested on the Lamb, calling them sons and daughters. Now, of course, this is significant here because Joseph and Mary bring along Jesus. 
who is the ultimate Passover lamb. He's brought to the temple. Here he was, the Messiah. The fullness of God and the fulfillment of all that God had promised since the garden. It's profound, isn't it? And now at 12 years old, Jesus was a year away from becoming what was called the Son of the Commandment. At 13 years old, Jewish males became a full member of the synagogue. So everything required of Jewish men would soon be required of Jesus. And remember, Jesus submitted himself to all the laws of the Jewish people that they could be fulfilled on behalf of us. So it was customary for a boy... at 10, 11, 12 years old, that they would attend the temple with their father to observe and to learn what would soon be required of them. The, year, uh, the, the fact that, that Mary also attended each year suggests that pr- probably Jesus did as well from a very early age. So just imagine this. 12-year-old Jesus... He's full of excitement. He's along to observe closely what his father, Joseph, his earthly father, will be doing. He enters the gates of the holy city. He sees this small place, and it's packed wall to wall with 200,000 Jews and more. There's merchants that have their tables set up, lining the streets, lining the walkways. Everywhere you go, there's shepherds selling sheep and goats, from their stalls to sacrifice at the temple. Passover day would have been very, very busy. The homes and especially the temple would have been bustling with activity. 24 divisions of priests from all over the land were there. And the first task of the day was to take all of the leaven that had been gathered the night before by candlelight from each home and ceremonially they would burn it. And then preparation was made for the the slaughter of the Passover lamb. And by midday, all work stopped and anticipation grew throughout the city. And around 3 p.m., the sacrifices began. I think Jesus was probably in the temple with Joseph to observe all that was happening in preparation for his manhood. He would have heard the sound of a ram's horn blowing in the distance as the city gates were closed, and he watched Joseph, his earthly father, slaughter the family's lamb as the priests caught the blood in silver and gold basins to douse against the base of the altar while psalms were sung. And the lamb was then brought home. It was, it was roasted on a pomegranate spit, and it was eaten by the entire family before sundown. While the Passover liturgy was followed precisely. And after the meal, a young boy would ceremonially ask, and I wonder if it was Jesus, they would ask, why is this night different from all other nights? And the father would respond by telling the story of God's delivering the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. Now think of it, all of this going on, all of this filling Jesus' heart as he witnessed everything. And as his family remained in Jerusalem for the week, he was in what one writer called holy delight. Everything he saw happening around him spoke volumes to his soul. And it's going to become very evident to us that he began to connect all of the scriptures that he knew with the reality of his own life. 
as his heavenly father revealed more and more and more to him of the mystery of who he himself truly was. It was setting the stage for what was next. Verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. The festivities of the Passover celebration would have been seven days. And after seven days in Jerusalem, all the Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem were heading back home. They would travel in a caravan, in a large group, with a group of people who lived in the same community as them. Women and children would travel together in the front. The men and older boys would travel together in the back. Now, at 12 years old... Jesus wasn't really considered a child, but he wasn't yet a man, so he didn't really fit into either category. So most likely, Mary was thinking, Jesus is with Joseph. And Joseph was probably thinking, Jesus is with Mary. Ever been there, parents? You ever left your kids somewhere because you thought your husband or wife had them? I know some of you have because I've had to call you. <laughs> hey, your uh, kids here at the church, you probably need to come get them. <laughs> so Joseph and Mary are traveling with the caravan. They get an entire day into their journey. Everyone stops and rests at night. And guess what? Jesus is nowhere to be found. So they begin asking around. No Jesus. Think of that. They just walked upwards of 20 miles. So think they walked from here to the Oglethorpe Mall in Savannah. With all of their stuff that they would need for two weeks away from home, only to find that they've lost the long-awaited Messiah. I think this is one of those subtle blessings in Scripture for parents. You ever feel like a complete failure as a parent? At least you didn't go the entire day realizing at least that you've lost track of 4,000 years of promise that God made you personally responsible for. So next time you have that little mini panic attack when your kid's hanging in the clothes rack at Walmart and you can't find them, just think of Joseph and Mary. They get settled, they look around, they're 20 miles away from the city, an entire day's journey, and he is nowhere to be found. They ask around, no one sees him. Look at the first part of verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple. So three days, one day out, one day back, and then one day searching around Jerusalem. Now, after three days alone in a big city, where do you expect to find a 12-year-old boy? Probably not where they found Jesus, right? After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So we find Jesus at the temple among the teachers. 
It had been common during the time of Passover, all the greatest teachers from around would come and they would gather together after the Passover festivities and they would talk theological talk. And surely Jesus didn't have access to this caliber of teaching in Nazareth. So he's taking full advantage of his time in Jerusalem. And as he listens, he responds with more questions. It says the teachers were amazed at Jesus' knowledge. Everyone who heard him in his questioning and his reasoning most certainly understood that this is not your average 12-year-old Jewish boy. Jesus knew and loved God's law from a very early age. He understood it. He could talk about it. And he asked questions and reasoned in a way that astonished everyone. And so we see Jesus is growing in his reasoning, his logic, his ability to comprehend. And he's reached the point to where he understands the mind of God and the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom that he now carries, and we're going to see that in just a moment when he reveals that reality. But it seems that from the text that Jesus isn't asking questions necessarily to gain answers, but rather he's he's trying to understand how these men, these teachers he was around, how they conceptualize the mind of God. How do they perceive God? What do they think they know about the truth of God? Now, remember, in 18 years after this, he would be asking questions of the teachers again, but they won't be the same kind of questions, will they? Right now, they look at Jesus as a 12-year-old boy and think he's smart. They're amazed at what he's able to discern. But in the end, they aren't too concerned about his conclusions, about whether or not they agree with what he's saying, because he's only a boy. But in 18 years, he's going to be 30. He's going to start to rattle some cages. A new ball game is played, and the amazement that they once had is going to turn to complete and total anger. Jesus' questions later on will be questions that only he can answer. That's something Jesus did all the time in his ministry, isn't it? Ask the religious leaders questions that only he could answer. He cut right through their hypocrisy. He drilled holes in their man-made religious establishment. But that's not for another 18 years. Here, he is a young learner, growing in wisdom and understanding. Now, the teachers, it says, were amazed. And that's, that's really the response we see all throughout the Gospels about Jesus, isn't it? He creates wonder and astonishment and amazement wherever he goes. To kind of, it's the kind of wonder that's created by the presence and power and the wisdom of God when he's in our presence. But look at Jesus here. Even as a young boy, there's no pride. There's no self-centeredness. There's no self-promotion. He's a respectful, humble Boy, he's a learner. He's a questioner. His questions show profound wisdom and a clear understanding of the Word of God. But it seems that this is the only record we have in the Bible of Jesus' boyhood because of its importance. If he didn't know it already, it's obvious at this point that Jesus realizes who he is and why he has come to dwell on the earth. 
I have a hunch that the questions he was asking had to do something with getting the teachers to talk about what they thought about the Messiah. Who would it be? How would they know? What would happen? And it amazed the teachers. Look at verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. It says Joseph and Mary were astonished. At what? Well, I don't assume that after three days they found him and they see him in a conversation with teachers and they say, well, let's just wait until the conversation is over. We'll sit back and listen to what he has to say until he's finished. In other words, it doesn't seem reasonable to conclude that their amazement was the same as the amazement of the teachers that Jesus was around. Most likely, they're amazed to see their 12-year-old son sitting in the midst of teachers at the temple and not frantic himself. Going around the city asking, where's my mom? In fact, Jesus seems absolutely impervious to any human circumstances right now whatsoever, right? In that moment, the whereabouts of his earthly father and mother were of no concern to him whatsoever. Think of this, Mom. What would, what would your concern be? We can't find your child for three days. What kind of things are you thinking about? What's he going to eat? Where is he sleeping? Is he safe? Is he crying? And there he was, discussing the scriptures. So Mary responds, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary's response comes from hurt feelings, a distressed heart. Literally, her statement translated as, Suffering pain, we are searching for you. And it's not hard to understand a response, is it? She had no reservation reprimanding Jesus in the presence of this distinguished company. I imagine she had mixed feelings of relief and, and gladness, and yet anger and frustration all the same. It's obvious that her and Joseph saw what Jesus did to be wrong. But then we see something really interesting. Jesus responds in a way that shows for several reasons that beyond any reasonable doubt whatsoever, he indeed is the living son of God. Now, of the various reasons why this is true, the most basic one is this. If at 12 years old I ever, ever, ever thought to respond to my mother the way Jesus does to his, it would not have gone well at all. You might as well cancel the bar mitzvah next year because it's not happening. I'm not making it another minute, let alone to the age of 13. Uh, Look how he responds to his mother when she asks him. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is exactly why Luke includes these verses in his gospel account. At 12 years old, Jesus indicates clearly that he understands exactly who he is, exactly what he came to do. It is one of the most profound statements 
that Jesus made. And his point is clear. He is the Messiah and he has a mission to accomplish. It is to do the will of the Father. Verse 50 says, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Luke's pointing out the reality that there is more here than meets the eye. They didn't understand Jesus' response then. We know from the rest of Scripture that they wouldn't understand him later either. But Luke is saying, this is the point. Don't miss it. They missed it, but you, reader, don't miss it. They searched high and low for Jesus, and where do they find him? They find him in the temple. And Jesus' answer is essentially, you shouldn't have to look for me at all. Don't you know it's necessary that I am in my Father's house? Or some translations say, about my Father's business. Now there's a textual nuance here. It's important for us to see a contrast drawn between the words of Mary and the words of Jesus. Specifically, notice that Mary says in verse 48, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Look at Jesus' response. I must be in my father's house. So she refers to your father as Joseph, and Jesus says, my father, referring to his heavenly father. So the first words of Jesus' life that are recorded for us to read are those in which he, on the brink of manhood, tells his parents in a very unforgettable way that he completely understands who his father is and what it means for him in the days ahead. So this is the main point of this entire section. Jesus now recognizes his uniqueness as the Son of God. He recognizes that his life mission will require of him a complete devotion to the purposes of God. So great that it takes precedence over all other relationships. He must fulfill his calling even though it may bring pain and sometimes misunderstanding. And Luke here is setting the stage for the remainder of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus reminds Mary that he is, in fact, no ordinary man at all, and his coming into the world is no common occurrence. In essence, he's, he's calling Mary to recall all that had happened in the beginning the visit from the angel, the virgin conception in her womb, the prophetic words of all that Jesus would be. She could not expect that Jesus would spend the entirety of his life dwelling at home quietly in Nazareth. It was a humble reminder to Mary that as God, he has a father in heaven and that the heavenly father's work was of the first importance to him. And this is an important truth for all of us to dwell on. That it would work in our hearts. Is this the aim of our daily lives? A test that we use to mark our daily habits, our daily conversations. Are we checking our lives against the great calling to be about the Father's business? It's humbling. It's maybe a troubling thought for us at times. It's very useful to our souls. No matter the circumstances, no matter the outcomes, no matter the difficulty that arises as a result, 
Am I completely and utterly consumed by this calling in my life as a disciple of Jesus Christ that my mission is to be about the Father's business? My purpose is to live a life taken up with glorifying God and enjoying God and all that He is for me in Christ Jesus. All of His attributes, all of His work, all of His providential provisions in my life, how do they set me on a course day by day to be about my Father's business? Now, to some of you this morning, the Father's business is no concern of yours whatsoever. You live your life for yourself. You live your life for your own glory, for your own comfort. But you're in bondage to your sin and you're a slave to your own desires. Jesus came to fulfill the mission that he was given. And that was to set helpless sinners free by the blood that he shed on the cross on our behalf. It was the Father's mission for Jesus It was established before the foundations of the earth in the great covenant of redemption that God the Father would make Jesus the Son who knew no sin to become sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it's all about. That's what Jesus was talking about. That was His purpose. So of course, Joseph and Mary didn't understand. Nobody would have dreamed all that Jesus would accomplish in His life and death, and most profoundly in His resurrection from the dead. They didn't get it. We see that in their response. Verse 51, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus made his point. He fulfilled God's law in the fifth commandment. He obediently went back with Mary and Joseph to Nazareth. It wasn't time for his mission yet. So he remained at home as any other Jewish boy in Nazareth for 18 more years, and we only get a glimpse of those 18 years. Just a glimpse, a small glimpse. One verse, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So he continues to progress. And you see this all through chapter 2. Let me show you something. Look at verse 16. It says, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby. The baby. Look at verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. So we have the baby, the child, verse 43. And when the feast was ended as they're returning, the boy, Jesus. So baby, child, boy, and then verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we see the progression right here in this chapter that Jesus is growing, he's learning, he's growing in wisdom, his understanding, his knowledge. And the next time we see him in the text, Jesus will be a 30-year-old man growing stronger physically in stature, getting a stronger grasp on the divine truth of God's word, growing in spiritual favor with God because of his continual triumph over temptation. 
And he grows in favor with men because of a wondrous perfection of his life. As we see Jesus next, we will see him as the teacher, making it very clear to all that he's God's son and that he must die. Now, as Luke continues to point to Jesus' humanity, it's important to remember that all 33 years of his life, Jesus was tempted just as you and just as I, yet he was tempted without sin. That means he was tempted as an infant to be selfish and impatient, but he wasn't. He was tempted as a child to superficiality and lying and disrespect, and yet we see none of them. He was tempted as a boy to vanity and pride and lust, but he fell not into any temptation. And as a man, he was tempted to idols and worldliness and self-service. And none of them do we see. This is a great encouragement, isn't it? Flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verses 15 and 16. As Jesus tells Mary and Joseph that he must be in his father's house, he must be about the father's business. This, this is the father's business, that he would come and live and dwell as a man, in the flesh of man, in the likeness of man, that he would endure this life just as you and I. We see this, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. That's a great truth. Jesus came to do the work that the Father gave him. He was tempted in every way, just as you and I, yet without sin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He endured temptation. He fulfilled the full law of God. He died on a cross. He was resurrected from the dead. And now, by God's grace, according to the Scriptures, His people can draw near to the throne with full assurance because Christ is our advocate, because Christ is our mediator, and He has purchased our full redemption through His obedience to do the work that the Father had set Him to do. And in his 12-year-old mind, Jesus began to connect these dots and set himself steadfast on fulfilling all that God had sent him to do, that God would be glorified through the redemption of mankind, through the redemption of you and of me. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so very thankful for your word. For your word that gives us hope and assurance. For your word that leaves us not wondering what you think of us. 
for your word that reminds us that Christ came, he lived and dwelled as a man, fully human, fully divine, that he would endure the temptation that each of us endure each and every day, and yet he did so without sin. And he did it for our redemption. In fulfilling that great covenant that Christ made with the Father to redeem a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation that we would gather together and worship him, the lamb who was slain forever and ever, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come. Lord, fill our hearts with joy in knowing who Christ is, what Christ has accomplished, and that Christ from the very beginning and on through eternity has always been set about doing the Father's business. Thank you, O God. And help us, Lord, to have hearts that are set on doing your business, fulfilling the great calling that each of us has in our lives, first and foremost, to be faithful disciples. Whatever that might look like, in wherever we work in our homes, in the places that we visit, wherever it is that we are day by day, I pray, O oh God, that you help us to have our hearts set on this great reality, that we are your people and that you have called us to something great. And that we are called to fulfill that mission, that you would be glorified, and that our joy would be made complete in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to work each day, not unto man, but unto Christ. And whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we do all things to the glory of God our Father. We love you, God, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of the scriptures. And we pray that we too would grow in wisdom and truth, that you would be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.